You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Now, we already had you once. It was delightful. But this will be a little different. We obviously generally do a free-flowing conversation, but we are starting a coaching series here. Or basically, we're going to get a coach that represents a different facet of training style each week for several weeks and let them explain their premise, how they approach different parts of training and why they believe that their style is the way that is superior. Uh, it's off-season time. People are going to start looking to make changes either to running their own training or to reach out and find a coach. And we just want to give people a lot of different styles thrown out them. We're going to have a high mileage person, a low mileage, a strength-based runner, a, uh, a compromise runner, a keep things separate runner. You have your own thing. And so just throwing people a lot of different styles and information and let them source out what they believe to be best. So it'll be less, a little less conversation today and a little bit more of actual questions we're going to ask you. All right. Which is different for us. Know what else is different for us? Letting somebody else host our recording. <laughs> In almost two years. So what happened is we couldn't get Richard to work with our software. So Richard Easy. suckered us into going on his software. <laughs> so Richard is recording this interview for us. Richard, that's not acceptable. This is backwards, man. Can I tell you something? If I don't like what's going on, I can delete some of this crap too. Just so, just so you know. Well, then you better get it right the first yeah, time. But I won't, do, I won't do that to you. I promise I will not do that. I'm going to be as straight up as I possibly can because I love you guys. just want you yeah, to know that. We appreciate that. It's mutual. Yeah. It is mutual. You're the first one that I had thought of to kind of hop on. Why? Because you've been kind of around the longest and been doing it the longest in our sort of small circle. But, um, you know, and I figured that'd be a good place to start. But, like, before we do, I kind of just want to get caught up on what you've been doing, man. Like. Before we jump into the structure of this whole thing, like I think we chatted with you, gosh, it has to be almost a year ago. It's been a while ago. Yeah. What have you been doing? I, I've been really, really focusing on trying to stay upright. You know, I'm getting old. Man. You're to that age? Yeah, dude. It's like uh, I got another month before I turn 69. There's a little blue pill that will help you with that. No, you know, that's that part's working. <laughs> it's just the legs that aren't working as well as they used to. But uh, just as long as, you know, ne never mind, I'm not going to go there. But um, so what have I been doing? I've been doing what I always do. I, I, I just finished a clinic uh, a week ago, two weeks ago here, and which very well may be the last one I do here in California, because if all goes well, I will be living in Tennessee before next year. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've decided to get out of this communist state of California and make my way to God's country. What uh, part of Tennessee? Uh, well, I don't absolutely know. I, we've been shopping. We've, we've, uh, we're looking at the Nashville area. Um, you know, a very popular part of the country is uh, Franklin, Tennessee. I have family in Franklin, Richard. Do you really? 
Yeah, I'll be going there first week of December for a race and staying with them. Well, I may very well be there by then. <laughs> yes. So we've we've been looking at Franklin because that seems to be the hot spot. Everybody wants to move to Franklin. The politics are good. Cost of living's good. Um, you know, I you, you got to live in California for a little while to appreciate what I'm going through. Um, but it's just ridiculous here. It's just ridiculous. And mind you. I'm going to miss, I've been, I've, I've made my bones here. I've been here over 30 years and, you know, I'm a Midwestern boy myself. I'm from Michigan. I don't know if you guys knew that, but mm -hmm. I was born and raised in Michigan. So California, I'm kind of a, an implant and, uh, but I have been here all of my, my life as, you know, what I am these days was developed and, you know, nurtured here in California. So it's going to be weird for me a little bit not to be here. Um, but I have a lot of business on that side of the country. Actually, I have more clientele on that side of the country than I do on this side of the country. So business will continue. I will probably prosper um, in my business because um, I'm easier to get to. Um, I'm going, I'm looking for a place with property. I want to have enough property where I can do things on my own property without having to, you know, schlep off to various places to do things. Uh, I want to build out uh, a lab rather than just be working out of my garage, which is, um, you know, I'm very excited about that whole prospect of things. That's the dream. Yeah. Other than that, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I could live just about anywhere because I'll tell you what, I every now and then it's like I could, you know what, I'm, I'm conditioned to live in prison. Because I never leave my house. You know, I'm <laughs> home all the time. Literally, I, I, I sold my car. I mean, I don't even have a car because I just don't go anywhere. You know, I had a Mercedes sitting out in front of my, my house, you know, staring at me and the, the lease payment coming up, you know, every month. Ah, you dumbass. What are you doing? You know, because <laughs> it was like, you know, 700 bucks a month for my Mercedes. And I'm like, you know what? This is stupid. And my, actually, my wife said that. She goes, sell your car. So we do have, we have a car, but it's between us. And she goes to work and, and I stay home, you know, and I, I just, you know, I work from You're home. You're a kept man. Well, it's like, here I am. This is my life right here. Virtually working with clients uh, online like this and or uh, people coming to see me. And so it's going to be different, um, but I, I'm ready. My wife's been out there three times. I've been out there twice. Um, I was out there recently, just before going to OCR World Championships, I, I stopped off in, in Nashville and we hung out for a week. And, uh, you know, I've already got, I've already got a mailbox there, dude. I mean, so, oh, okay. so I'm, I'm going, it's just a matter of finding the right place. And that's the difficult part. Um, I thought, you know what? I thought we found it. It's like we, you know, with the realtor, we're going around looking at all these places and we finally found this place where, and I, you know, and I'm like, I'm all, all about what's going to happen behind the house, right? Rather than in the house. And there was this outbuilding that they store their RV in. It was, you know, the stone face on it was mirrored the house, had the big RV roll up door in the middle, like 30 by 40 or something like that. And I'm like, wow, look at that. You know, and I'm thinking I'm already seeing my treadmill set up in there and all this stuff. I'm like, oh man, look at that. Went into the house. The house was perfect. I could not find anything wrong with the house. And the price was stupid cheap. And uh, my wife, too. She's like, okay, yeah, this is it. And then uh, we rolled into the little town. I don't want to 
tell you what town it was because I don't want to cast aspersions on the people that live there because I do know a couple of people that do live there. But we roll into town and I see this tall gray building with concertina wire around the, you know, I'm going, is that a, is that a freaking prison? And the realtor's going, oh, no, it's probably just the courthouse. You know, I'm like, no, 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 no. There's no windows. on. <laughs> so we, we roll into town and every little boutique shop was a bail bondsman. Bail oh, yeah. bonds, bail bonds. Oh, boy. Pawn shop. <laughs> My wife's like, no, this isn't going to happen. So didn't you a- just say that you were kind of practicing to live in prison there in your current <laughs> yeah. setup? Sounds you know, like a transition concert. I was okay with it. My wife was like, no way, man, we're not doing this. And so I, I don't want to get a divorce out of this. So we're definitely going to make sure she's happy too. So, but anyway, um, let's, I know you got questions and I'll stop blabbering. And That's all we do, Richard. All we do is blabber. I, I asked, I opened the door for blabber. All right. But it sounds like that's a pretty cool facility. So maybe you're going to be able to bring people to your new place when that exists, build out exactly what you want, and then yeah. sort of create all the elements that you need without sort of improvising yeah. uh, half the time. Be nice. Is the topography there pretty good? I mean, Bracken, I know you're racing there, but you got elevation, you got all that. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's amazing. But, you know, the, 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 the irony of it is, is before I worked in my garage, I did have a place. And uh, I spent a ton of money on this place, and it was just me working there. And it cost me a fortune to to function there, doing what I do these days. And um, but it was great. I mean, the facility was great. the 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 hard part about it was I had a landlord and I was renting, and it was just killing me. So now it'll be the same scenario. It'll be on my own property. I won't have anybody I'm obliged to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, and not have any other expenses other than my my mortgage. And, um, you know, housing in California is hot. So we, we have, we're in escrow right now in my homes. It's, it's, uh, we're just waiting to close escrow. And, and uh, I sold my house for a good bit. And uh, I'm going to be in a really good place financially when I do move. So I can do just about whatever I want to do. So it's, it's absolutely the best scenario possible. It's just, it's just. Well, uh, maybe another eight eight hours up north and get more bang for your buck in Milwaukee with me. <laughs> you, know, you know, uh, I, I looked at places that are outside of Franklin and my wife's a little edgy about getting too far away, getting too rural. This is the argument mm-hmm. we're having. I'm like, I looked at a house at 12 and a half acres in a big, big out, out building in the back. And I'm like, I'm in, this is it. You know, she's done. She's, I'm not going to live 12 and a half acres away from my neighbors. You know, I'm like, whatever. So, Sounds like the dream, if you ask me. Oh, I know, I know, but not have to see anyone. Yeah. That's my that's my dream, I don't, dude. I don't Bliss. see anybody anyway. You know, yeah. it's I don't even have any friends. People come to see me because they're they paid to be here. It's like ridiculous. Right? <laughs> so. Bracken's really my only friend. It's okay. My friends are all digital. So yeah. let's go, man. Let's let's get this going. I'm I'm hot to go. You're hot to trot here for us, Rich. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Meow. Well, I guess the first thing I'd like is, and I think, I feel like this right here is when you find out about coaches, the first question. um, And I know you can do this because you're a good coach. Like I I recommend people to you if we're, thank you. If, if, and because I, I know that that can be trusted and because you can provide things I can't, and I'm aware of that. So the first question is the first thing I think people should ask a coach 
And if they can't answer that, they don't belong getting your business. But what is your philosophy? No pressure. What what are your principles that you espouse that are like your your pillars of your training? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So like it sounds like a mission statement, and um, kind of. But you know, really I, like I don't. I have. I've need. never. I've never developed a mission statement, but I do have some very steadfast principles about the way I approach a client. And I, before you get started, I prefer principles to a mission statement because a mission statement can be crafted to say whatever you want it to say. And you don't necessarily have to be able to back it up. Yeah. Steadfast principles are what I want. So uh, in my world, you know, I'll have someone approach me and um, many times it won't be a physical approach. It'll be there somewhere else. I have clients in Taiwan. I've got them all over the place, right? And I may not have the opportunity to be physically with them to get a sense of who they are. Um, mm-hmm. In that circumstance, my first step is to perform VO2 tests and gait analysis. I just want to know who I'm dealing with. And so I, I guess the thing with me is fundamentals. I, I won't just I just won't hit the accelerator and go straight into training with somebody without me knowing whether there's something that needs to be organized or corrected or fixed. And, and if they're not willing to sit still for that, they got the wrong coach. Because um, I think that the majority of the athletes I've met have flaws that could be corrected that would put them in a better place. So my, my first consideration when I'm dealing with a client is getting to the fundamentals and making sure all that stuff is done. And then that may take some time. That may not take very long at all, just depending on who I'm dealing with. So I don't really have this process where I'm like, okay, you know, I see that you're on the podium all the time. So let's just start throwing a lot of work at you, right? And assume that that's going to be the answer for them. And it's, it's generally not. Uh, I'm looking for the difference. I want to make a difference for an athlete. And what I do, I believe, in most part, has shown to be the difference because I will take the, the time to make sure that everything is right. I won't just take your word for it. You can't just tell me who you are and me accept that you, you know, okay, you're the real deal. So we'll just do your, we'll do whatever you want to do, right? Because that's not coaching. That's just me obliging someone and them paying me for it, you know? Right. So, uh, and I have people that I work with that I could use as a model where um, they've been close enough to me where we've had a chance to really get together and work. And um, I don't want to use VJ as an example because even though he has spent a lot of time with me, uh, I mean, we were together every week for a couple years, uh, once a week for a couple of years. And then he's attended every clinic I've done. So I have had influence over him. And early on, I've had a lot of influence over him. But a better standard would be working with somebody like a guy named uh, uh, Jimmy Stratton, who lives in Camrio near, he's, you know, I don't know, he's like uh, 10 miles away. He's still to this day here every Tuesday morning. And we've gotten a pa- we've gotten past conversations about how to run, whether you're running well, whether you're doing the things that I believe are um, what should be done in order to get past those hurdles. So what I'm suggesting is, for example, I might have somebody, let's just say, for example, he's running a six minute mile. You know, we're looking at uh, like an 18 minute 5k guy or something like that. But he's been hammering at that 18 minutes for his entire existence and never seeing the promised land. Right. And it's because there's some flaws that he just doesn't take care of. You know, you got to pull, you got to pull the arrow out of his chest finally to free him up and allow him to get to that place. And so I think that uh, if there's a difference between me and a lot of other guys, and, and beyond, 
be honest with you, I don't really know what other guys are doing. I don't even care, right? I, I, I just don't have enough time to, to, to focus on what other guys are doing. I'm too busy trying to learn what I'm trying to get done, right? I'm trying to teach somebody something, and I'm trying to teach myself at the same time. I don't have time to go chasing other guys' bullshit around to see whether they're better than me. I just don't care. Um, mm-hmm. And so with Jimmy now, we, we don't have these conversations about the way he moves anymore. He's got it nailed. He's, he's running. When I met him, you know, he was lucky to pull down a seven-minute mile and injuries left and right. And now uh, for just a mile, he'll, 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 break, he'll break five minutes. He can get under that 455 range for a mile and be absolutely spot on with, it, with perfection with the way he's moving. Now, he's got some energetic issues and he's got some um, things that um, disallow him from going long. Now, now we're kind of going into high rocks because he likes high intensity, short duration stuff. He's just that kind of guy. And I don't like to put a square peg in a round hole. So, you know, when I identify that that's just his jam, the way body responds to work or whatever, we're going after that. I'm not going to tr- try to teach him how to do a, uh, an ultra beast because it's cool and everybody's doing it, right? He's, he's, not, he's just not that guy. And I've had occasion where I run into athletes where they might have been chasing different functions and they just, they just were, you know, again, trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And so I, I usually try to define who I'm dealing with. And the, the testing helps me with that. It gives me a sense of who I'm dealing with. Like right out of the gate, I start to know. That's not for them. That's for me, by the way. I just find out, okay, who am I dealing with? What are the circumstances we got to work on? The gate analysis helps me with that. And once I got all that stuff clear, then, you know, we could start working on, on the other things. And uh, so being off season, um, I like to go back to the fundamentals, you know, because what happens when you're racing is you tend to get lazy right? You tend to get away from the details and you tend to um, just kind of fall into this, this shit that you used to do because you're so busy trying to chase somebody that, you know, all reason goes out the window and then you can't figure out why things aren't going as well as you had hoped. Um, so I just rein them back, say, okay, look, no pressure, no racing. Let's just get back and make sure that when we enter the season, we're going in there with all guns blaring. So you begin with movement and analysis. Get the movement right, and then the process really begins. I think I think that's the way to go. I mean, um, you know, there might be other people that have opinions about this, and I'm sure they do. I've had people tell me that, oh, you know, it's the way people run. You don't ever want to mess with that. That's just, you know, that's how they go, you know. And, you know, I take exception to that mentality. Um, I, I think that... Uh, not everyone is able to do exactly what I'd like them to do. Their bodies just may not allow it. But there is definitely, uh, you can if you can gather 20% improvements in the way you're moving as opposed to the way you were moving, let's go with that, right? So, uh, yeah, I go, that, I go that route with everybody. Do you think that changing biomechanics is easier than changing physiological markers? Meaning... Is changing your biomechanics easier than increasing your VO2 max or your anaerobic threshold? Do you believe that cleaning up the biomechanics will move the needle faster than those other two things? Well, I think both of those things uh, require um, consistency of process. So let's say we've, do- we've identified what we need to do to move the needle for your, in- your energy system, right? Then if, if you apply yourself... Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I think I think the same thing applies to changing mechanics. Like so, 
If you really, really pay attention to what you're supposed to be doing and really focus on getting that done, it happens pretty quick. Um, and then some people, they, they, you know, I think it was, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Jada Sherry. You guys know who Jada Sherry is? Jerry, Jada Sherry is a, a physical therapist and he's a biomechanist, one of the best in the country. And by the way, he's got a book, and you're, I know you guys like to look at books. It's Anatomy for Runners by Jada Sherry, Dick Harry, D-I-C-H-A-R-R-Y. And uh, I've uh, actually done a podcast with him, I think, a couple times back in the day. And I've met him a couple times. Uh, but he said that it takes about 6,000 repetitions to make a new habit. So assume that you are doing something correctly for six consecutive repetitions, 6,000 consecutive repetitions. Odds are you're, you're going to own it. Is that 6,000 strides or 6,000 interval sets? Well, whatever it might be. It could be 6,000 correct punches. It could be whatever. So you, in order to develop that mechanical trait to overcome mm -hmm. what you had been doing, you need to have changed it for that many consecutive times. And I, I mean, I don't know that that's the number, like ding, you hit 6,000. Right. But, but you know, I've heard also uh, 10 hours you know, of, of, of continuous correction to cause a change. So I don't know. I mean, I, I could tell you that through experience, I've seen uh, people improve by, uh, they met me, we did some things, and then they go off in the world, and I see them maybe a year later. Uh, they might be 30, 40% better than they were. Uh, but they started, the, the big thing with me is I want to see there's no injuries, right? So as you start to apply yourself, there's no longer the injuries that you were suffering. And, I, and by the way, that tends to be the bulk of my business is people come because they've been just frustrated with repetitive injuries. And, um, you know, I knew this guy named Kirk, but, you know, he never did get around to it. So, um, but, but so. Um, come on now. Come on. Energetics is another thing. So, you know, that's a whole nother rabbit hole with me these days. Uh, because I wrote this book and uh, I've developed some very strong feelings about what we should be doing with this energy system. Um, you know, moving the needle with the threshold and worrying about the VO2 max and all this other jazz. Um, I finally just got to this place. I concluded that there's, there's more to it and less to it at the same time for developing that energy system. And um what I never thought in my life I would be doing is giving so much credence to perception, being the guy that does all the analysis. You know, I've really feathered in the importance of perception of effort into the the clinical aspect of the work. And uh, I don't know if you guys have been following any of the crap that I've been doling out lately, but, you know, one of my guys that I worked with years ago, who is strictly a marathon runner, um, I got in his head and he started following the premise that I've been selling. And if I showed you his Strava, it would blow your mind what he's been doing uh, since he kind of gravitated to this concept of flow training. Um, and this guy had run 66 marathons prior to, you know, coming back to me uh, and working the energy system the way we're working it. And uh, I mean, I could tell you that in a 20 mile time trial, in mile uh, 11, he was running a 455 pace at 130 beats per minute. Wrap your head around that for a second. Mile 17, he was running a 508 at 128 beats per minute. So realize he's 17 miles into his training and his heart rate's actually going down and his, and his pace isn't suffering for it. 
freaking crazy. Uh, had, had it not been for the weather in Boston this time around, I expected him to run sub 220 for the marathon. His PR prior to that was 220. By the way, his VO2 score, you know, just not for nothing, when I tested him 10 years ago, was an 85. You know, the guy, the guy can, you know, he's got, he's got some skills. But um, typically when he runs, before we did what we were doing, his heart rate was rolling at about 160 beats. And uh, just crazy, crazy changes. And we don't have time for all that right now. But, um, you know, you brought up the idea of bending the energy system versus the mechanics. Um, I'm kind of, those are the two things I do. It's like I think about economy and I think about efficiency. You know, bring me a guy. I got to work on his efficiency and I got to work on his economy. That's, that's what I do. Well, I think we'd be remiss to talk to you about coaching principles and not really illuminate flow training. So you're, you're, you're the person who is, who is spearheading this. Yeah. You're, it's a one yeah. man movement. Let's talk yeah, about so, it. So can I, can I tell you something? It's like, it was really interesting for me. It was like a life changing situation for me. And, you know, and I don't, I don't use those kind of terms lightly, but uh, I finally concluded that my mistake was being so busy concerning myself with what other people are doing. Meaning you read these books and you read about this guy's theories and that guy's theories. And, you know, and then you start to own or you kind of uh, get involved in their head. You know, so he said it. So it must be true. Right. And I came to this place. I said, what the fuck are you doing? You've been at this for 30 years. And now you're, you, you're going to start writing a book and relying on what other people tell you. So I just started printing reports. I just went through my own database and started printing reports and started looking at the cause and effect relationship with the way people were working, what their histories were and what the outcomes were. And I started to realize that and all through some scientific research, looking at actually the physiology of what goes on when you're processing lactate in the body, and this kind of thing. And I concluded that for first off, there is not two energy systems or three or four, you know, people concern themselves with a being aerobic for a great length of time before they concern themselves with going anaerobic. So it's kind of a, a build phase they speak of all the time. And this is kind of a literate approach to training that most people have been chasing forever and ever and ever. And what I've concluded was it's a function of adaptation and you have to, you have one energy system and there's, there's merit on both ends of that scale. What happens when you're aerobic and what happens when you're anaerobic? But both of those provide energy. You know, going anaerobic doesn't mean you're no longer accessing energy. It just means that if you're not adapted to that environment, it's going to be too toxic for you and it's going to take you out. It's going to shunt your capacity to produce work. So I started messing around with it. And the first step I did that kind of really cinched it for me was when I turned CrossFitters into people that were more enduring. They could do high intensity work and survive it and actually produce greater workloads and still survive the work as opposed to what they traditionally had done, which is, you know, like everybody else lay on the ground, you know, panting like a dog because they just beat themselves to death. And we started seeing really good results from that. And so I started, you know, and it never was intended to be for that community it was what I was doing was intended for endurance. And so now I've started to get people to uh, when they're working. So the nucleus, this is going to take a long time to do, guys. I'm sorry. It's all right. Don't apologize. This is the good stuff. So, so the, the nucleus of your metabolism is 
for lack of a better term, I guess your threshold. And so this is the metabolic turn point. This is where you're either going into your sugar stores or you're staying deeper into your fat stores. So there's that little turn point, right? And so we want to identify what that is because it's important. Because this is, our, this is where we're going to go when we're trying to recover, when we're trying to clear some of that lactate, right? But getting exposed to the greater intensity is very unique to every individual. I've got guys who do ultra distance events and their threshold sucks. You know, the guy gets over 120 beats per minute. He's all into his sugar stores and he goes up on a mountain and beats himself to death for six hours. How does that happen? How does a guy manage to, to pound himself in the ground for six hours in an endurance event when he has absolutely zero threshold, which means he's all up into his sugar stores the whole time? You can't feed it, right? Look at, look at the guys that do Ironman, that are winning Ironman. Eight and a half, nine hours. You think these guys are aerobic when they're on that bike? Turning out like 30 miles an hour on the bike? They're no they're way. thrashing they're, themselves. They're absolutely anaerobic the whole time. So where is this energy coming from? So this lactate conversion is turning back into glucose, going back to the muscles as glycogen. So it's, it's, I call it an energy rebate. So what you want to do, and you could potentially pull back 30% on average of the energy you spend. So if, if you spend 1,000, you get back 300. That's better than a goo. That's better than trying to, you know. But, but getting into there and being able to support that work while most other guys are toxic is key. I want you to be able to handle that toxicity and it not be a problem for you. It's like, you know, you guys live out where it's cold. And if you go out to decide one day you're going to run bad water and it's 130 degrees, you're going to die, right? Because you're not, you're not adapted to that environment. So lactic acid is essentially just a different environment that you have to adapt to. But there's, there's promise there if you, if you develop that capacity well. So flowing takes into account clinically what your threshold is and where, you know, you start to get more and more into the, to the toxicity. And so what you start to do is you start to rely on, uh, you start to rely on your capacity to be okay in that environment. And when you feel like you've got to depart in order to gather yourself, you do. So let's say, for example, we're going to go out for a two-hour run. And I don't like to think in terms of time, uh, distance, I think in terms of time. We're going to go out for a two-hour run. But we're going to visit every aspect of the, the energy system. So we're going to start out, traditionally, we'll start out aerobically. And, you know, you start to feel good. You say, you know what, I'm going to go. And you punch it up and you start to get over your threshold. And, you know, you start to feel it. Start, you know, it's starting to get a little untenable. And you decide, okay, you know what, I'm going to recover. Get a little air. Get back in it. Try it again. And try it again. And maybe the third time you stay there a little longer. Because your, your, your exposure is a little bit more receptive that time. And then maybe somewhere along the way, you, you hit it. You're going to go all the way out. You're going to go like VO2 max effort. And maybe it's only for 30 seconds, but you're going to get in there because your fitness lives on the top end of that spectrum. And your endurance lives on the bottom end. But you can't live with one or the other. You've got to have, you've got to have a full spectrum capacity to be a, a, a really well-developed um, athlete, in my mind. And uh, so... I have, so you might, if you break, if you break it into terms, I might say, okay, look, because you're training to go long, I want 70, 65, 70% of your workouts to be aerobic. But I also want you to visit the paint. I want you to get over a threshold, maybe 20% of the time, and maybe even 10% of that time frame, 
you're going to be way up in the, into the work. But that doesn't mean you're going to segment it and do this first, do that second, do that third. You're going to flow in and out of it, and your perception is going to dictate when it's time to move. And so well, that was the, sort of sorry, sorry to interrupt, but that's really my main question with with that philosophy is, let's say you're taking a five minute miler who runs a 18 minute 5k and he's going to go out and do a two hour run. Like, where's, I understand like the flow state, but like when you're giving direction on that, like how would that, if, even if it's just an example, like how would an athlete even know what to do on that run what would be followed or not followed? Or is it intuitive based? Like, I guess my curiosity would be like, if you were to be real specific with that, I'd be curious. Yeah. Okay. So first, first of all, if he's a, if he's a, if he's trying to, is he trying to be a miler or a 5k guy? Let's say he's trying to improve his 5k, but he roughly runs a five minute mile and an 18 minute 5k, but damn it. He wants to run in the 16th. I probably would never have him run a two hour run. He probably okay. would never well, go. Yeah. No, I'm just saying he probably would never go longer than an hour in his workouts. There's just okay. no, there's no good reason for him to really, really hone in on his endurance. Cause the reason someone would do that traditionally is because they're trying to get that threshold to go further and further north. And when you go hard in a 5K, you're not going to be aerobic. <laughs> you're not going to be. You're going, to, you're going to be anaerobic like all of that time. So you just need to learn to live in that environment. So I would I would probably fashion the work to be like if it, the workload was uh, an hour, I might have 50% of it be aerobic. And I might have 20, 25% of it be, I mean, not always the same, right? We're going to feather it around. We're going to mess with it. By the way, one, I have workouts where we do eight by 800s. And in those eight by, you know, eight times 800, each time is approached uh, separately with different intent. So you may start out aerobic and then eventually visit the, the top end of your energy system at the tail end of that 800. You may start out hot and then feather back and come back up and feather back over the course of 800. But I usually will have them do it like, uh, eight different ways and then start to get a sense of what works for you. How does your body respond to the treatment you're pu putting yourself through? And so you start to learn what works for you because um, let's just, so this is kind of a, a, a simple logic that I, that I, I think I have is that I'm writing programs for guys and then they go race, right? The gun goes off and everything they learn goes right out the window. Now, now all it is is trying to stay with so-and-so, trying to stay ahead of so-and-so, trying to catch so-and-so, and they have zero control of what they're doing anymore. They're, they're not going to like, well, you know, I'm at 140 beats per minute, so I can't go to 150. If I do, I'm going to be in deep shit. You know, they're just, they're just chasing and hoping it works. So why wouldn't you train to prepare for that? Why wouldn't you train so that you have an answer for whatever is thrown at you at any given time? And that means that you have to have control of your entire energy system, not not have a lion's share of it be, well, you know, he's taking me into deep water and I'm not I'm not training that way, you know, so I don't know what to do, do with it. Or I, I go into deep water early, but I don't have the, the, the lungs to carry me for the long haul. So there's just the preparation is just kind of it's not it's not necessarily conducive to uh, a racing scenario. So uh, the flow helps you to better identify what works with you and how to develop those, those principles. So uh, what I try to do is we're not sketching it out where this is exactly what it needs to look like. 
we're going to look at the, the cost of work after fact. I want to see what it looked like after you did it and whether that's improving. And we start to look at it and say, wow, you know what? When you're used to be when you're at 155 beats per minute, you were at a seven minute pace. Now you're at a 630. And your, your effort is no different. You feel just as comfortable as you were before, but you're putting down a, a lot more work or a, a lot less work and a lot more yield, I should say. Um, and so making people become uh, cognizant of what is occurring during their workouts, giving them the levity to control when to get off the accelerator and when to get back on it um, is a learning process. And then so the, the, the testing that I do is just a guide. So, for example, let's just say that I look at what they, they refer to as respiratory exchange ratio. And I know based on respiratory exchange ratio what the percentage of fat versus sugar is being used. How aerobic you are versus how aerobic you're not, right? And so have I te- if I had tested you and then you go out and apply yourself, I could see the heart rate. I know what the respiratory exchange ratio is relative to that point in time. And then I could start to determine whether you're adapting or not. So used to be you could not hold 150 beats per minute without burning up. Now you're singing in the rain at 150 beats per minute even though you're 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 into your sugar stores, but you're okay. You're not. It's not like oh my god, I'm in my sugar stores. I got to get out of there. It's not going to last. You don't know. You you really don't know. You may be gaining benefit from the energy system that you never dapped, tapped into before. So it's it's been profound. I'm I'm going to tell you, and I I got to know. I got to tell you, I don't know anybody else that's doing this. Other than maybe somebody that maybe read my book and they just really started chasing it down. And they're starting to throw it at, at their clients or whatever. I, I don't know. But um, I can tell you that I've been messing with it. And all, all of my clients that I work with these days are following that. At least they're they're taught to, to follow the work that way. And I'm, you know, the ones that really get on it and grip it are killing it. And the ones that kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, but they're not really doing it. You can't control that, right? Well, Sorry to jump in again, Bracken, but but the last thing I wanted to just hone in on with that was like after we talked to you like a year ago or whenever that was, my question was still like after we talked about it, I was like, okay, I understand the philosophy totally. You've explained that very thoroughly, but like I want to know like you take your first step of that hour run and how it actually like it can just be an example of one workout. I don't really care what it is. Minute one through minute 60 of that workout like understanding the flow of your flow state workout within that hour, like specifically like minute one to 10 is a warm up with a few pickups. And then you go into X, Y, and Z, like just like, like really understanding like the nuts and bolts within the work, like one example workout is sort of not without giving away the secret sauce, of course. No, I, look at I, Look at, I'm an open book. You guys know this. I, I'm not trying to covet anything. Um, so I, I think I understand the question and I want to try to best answer it. Um, let's just say the two of you guys are going to do the same workout, right? And what I'm dictating is basically how much exposure you're going to have to what part of the energy system, right? So I, I think that the, the, the right thing for both of you is I want about 60, this is hypothetical, okay? I, I, I want 60% of the workout to be aerobic. I don't care when you do it. I don't care when you decide to do it. He may, Bracken may decide, you know what? I like to go out hot and then I settle back into a nice rhythm and then I'm kind of cool because my body needs that first. You, on the other hand, if you go out hot early, it may not work for you. It might be like totally, you know, it just screw everything up for the rest of the run. 
So you have to follow your process. You may need to warm up. You know, you got to go slower and easier, stay aerobic in the beginning, and then you're ready to rock, right? So, um, but it doesn't matter whether you go hot early, go hot late, go hot in the middle, because the timeline and the exposure you have is going to be the same. So if, if I say 60% of it's going to be aerobic and, you know, 25% of it's going to be, you know, 15 beats or so up over your threshold and the rest of it, you know, sprinkling, sprinkling in some max effort, um, you could do it any, when you, any time or whenever you want to do it. So let's just say that we followed that process one hour a day, five days a week. You're going to start to learn what you're capable of. So you may initially started out, like in his case, he might have started out going hot for the first five minutes, and then he really needed to let feather back. Otherwise, it wasn't going to work for him. Now he started to find out, you know what, I'm adapting to this kind of process. I could stay here for seven, eight, ten minutes. Not only that, but my pace is better. But I do got to come back out of it and gather myself or vice versa. You might find that, you know, before you needed ten minutes of really easier paced running in the beginning, now you need five because you're, you're adapting to that, that more toxic environment. And, you know, your body's just starting to, you know, heave to the process. So, and I used this analogy before and I, a million times, and I'm almost sick of saying it because, you know, it seems so simple, but to me, it just really drives the point home. When we, when we take energy in, and I probably told you this before, you take energy in, we all kind of agree that there's three basic substrates we gotta have. We gotta have fat, we gotta have protein, we gotta have carbs, right? Now, people have been screwing around with that recipe forever. Being fat adapted, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like, a, you know, alternating fasts or, um, you know, whatever, right? But, but at the end of the day, it would be ridiculous to say, well, I know I need those three things. So Monday is going to be my fat day. All I'm going to eat is fat. And Tuesday is going to be my carb day. All I'm going to eat is carbs. And Wednesday is going to be protein. That's all I'm going to eat. At the end of the week, you're hoping your metabolism was successful, that everything kind of worked out at the end, right? I just don't see that as being beneficial, where when you train somebody and you segment the work, where you say, okay, Monday's our aerobic day, and then Tuesday, we're going to go to the track and hammer it out, and then on Wednesday, maybe we're going to do kind of a tempo workout, and at the end of the week, what you're hoping is the, the, the adaptation that you hope to achieve, because of the way you align those 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 sessions, it all comes together and you're a better athlete. I'm suggesting, and I believe this to be true, is that you can incorporate almost everything you need to do every time you need it in every workout and almost end up in a better place, better rested, fitter, more enduring, and more capable of uh, dealing with that lactate. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that if you train five days a week, it's got to be the same way every day. You know, you might have a Tuesday where you're like, you know what, that was a rough workout yesterday. I need to just chill, do a nice base run, just to clear, clear you know, clear the deck. Um, or maybe some days are higher intensity, shorter duration workouts, but you're still flowing. But based on demand, based on what your needs are. So I, I've, I've applied this principle to every type of training I can think of. And every stinking time I've done it, it's worked. Uh, so there you go. One man band. Give me an example of a recovery flow workout. Let's say I trashed myself on Tuesday. What does a flow Wednesday look like? So uh, I have recovery flow workouts that I issue my clients. Uh, generally, they end up being preparatory for race. 
So let's just say, for example, you plan on racing on Saturday. We've had a pretty rough couple weeks of training. When we start getting closer to uh, the race, I might issue a 30-minute flow workout. And really all it is is just you're just, you're just clearing out the, the, the metabolic waste. You go easy. Your body starts feeling good. You punch it up a couple times, like, like people want to call strides. I don't like the term strides because that has no uh, bearing on the way you move. It's just effort, less effort, effort, less effort. So I want to make sure that, you know, like tuning a violin, I want to make sure that I can create music at those higher intensities. Briefly, briefly. So it might be a function of, you know, you, you're going out for like 30 seconds where you're tapping into the, the higher end of the energy system, then you recover, chilling for a while, back. And the whole workout might be 30 minutes. Might be less, depending on where you're at. I have some that are 45 minutes. I have some that are 30. I got some that are 20. It just depends on what we're trying to do and what the needs are for that individual. But but it's not like, um, I don't think that there's any value uh, pre-race to go out and spend 15 minutes just running aerobic. You're not planning to, to race that way. I mean, you if, you're, if, you're, if your mindset is that, you might as well just get on a, on a stationary bike and just roll your legs out and, you know, flush the toxins out that way. And let your legs recover if that's what you needed. Um, but I want to I want to test the system. I want to have, I want a guy to have confidence that those gears are available to me today tomorrow. When I when I start looking for those gears, they're going to be there for me because I tested them. They felt pretty good. Confidence levels up. It wasn't so much work that it you know put you off your recovery your taper. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a recovery flow. Okay. You said something earlier when you're describing Kirk and I as athletes, and we'd have to approach flow differently. And you actually described me when you talked about Kirk, where I am someone that all my PRs, and if I ever crack off a run or just have a day, it's built into. Let's say I was going to try to run a 420 mile. If I run my first two laps at 65, I am not finishing in 65. But if I go out in, let's say, 63 and then fade to 68, I'm coming back in 62 and 59. Or if I go out in 68, 68, 65, 60, like I progress through things. Same thing for a 10-mile run. If you said go average 550 for a 10-mile run, if I go out at 550, I will not finish below 620. But if I start at 640, I might finish at 510. You know, I'm a, I am a person who needs to build into races. So if I went into your flow state, Tell me how I would approach it. So, so appreciate that, first of all, for the most part, what we're talking about is we're talking about fatigue. It's, it's really about how you're managing fatigue. And so then you have to ask yourself, what is it that's causing the fatigue? So there's a lot of things that, that play into what will result in fatigue. It could be just you're completely overheated. You could be dehydrated. You could be just really sore from the workouts previous, and you're trying to ask your muscles to do what they can't. Um, but then the chief concern is that lactate. So you're collecting lactate. So if, if you know, you're talking about pace and realize the cost of that yield is heart rate. So let's just say hypothetically that at 160 beats per minute, it's untenable. And if you, mm -hmm. and if you don't give yourself some respite, you're not going to clear enough of it. And the next time you approach it, it's just going to add on to what you already had. And then you're going to be more acidic and it's going to be problematic. So what you described to me is that if you laid back a bit early, you'd have that capacity to produce the work at the end. Correct. So it's a function of how you're managing that lactate. So this, in, in keeping with what I'm talking about, is really 
what it boils down to is that you need to get more capable of processing. Let's take it a different way. Now, take you guys off the off the the, the table here for a minute. Get an, uh, an OC, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a CrossFit athlete. They go till they blow. They go like thirty minutes into a wad. Boom! They hit the ground. They're done. Right. And so they realize that the intensity of the work that they're collectively taking on is producing more and more and more and more lactate until eventually they're punch drunk. Their body just does not function anymore. They lay down and they can get up off the ground after 10 minutes and then maybe go do another workout and be okay. But essentially they've not, they've not been doing something to manage that production of lactate. And so there's a couple pathways metabolically that, that are responsible for how quickly you can process that lactate. Um, there, there's, and most people believe that lactate leaves the muscles through the bloodstream, and it doesn't. It actually it permeates through the the, the actual uh, soft tissue. It just it just like dissipates out of the muscle, assuming that you have the right transporters in play. So it's MCT two is is a transporter that gets it out of your muscles within like five seconds. But it's, it's dependent on uh, your muscle structure and function. So if you have like a lot of fast twitch fibers, your body's more uh, in tune with evacuating that lactate quickly. But you're, because of all that fast twitch, you just don't have the endurance. So this is your CrossFitters, right? So just by getting these guys into this rhythm where they at least give themselves a little bit of time in their cardio treatments, they started to yield some really big results in their lifts, which was crazy. And so endurance athletes, they have a, a different transporter that takes longer. It takes longer to get out of the muscle, but because the intensity is not as great, it, it, it's insidious. It kind of like moves out. It's starting looking for homes. Like it might lay up in the lactate shuttle system. Dr. George Brooks, if you've ever chased that down, talks about the lactate shuttle system and how you're pushing this lactate up into parts of your body that are not busy. Uh, getting it out of your quads, getting it out of your hamstrings, throwing it up in your lats. It sits there for a little bit, makes its way back down. Some of it's evacuated through carbon dioxide. You're, you know, the relief valve through respiration, you're getting rid of some, saving some. And then it comes back and it becomes that energy rebate I was speaking of. So it just depends on the way you're trying to train for what you're trying to train for and how much respite you're going to get relative to what is traditional, which is just kind of stacking work up segmented processes and that's that's the difference between i don't know i might have got lost here with you a little bit but uh, no it's all right you follow you getting what i'm trying to tell you yeah yeah and what i was getting towards is less of don't fix me it's more of so if we approach that workout you said you like to let athletes be intuitive and see what works for me how do you ensure that i'm not approaching each workout as doing what works fun for me versus what pushes my needle physically. As in, if I know holding back allows me to crank it later, how do you know I'm not just getting better at cranking later because the workout's more fun if I back off rather than working on the race skill needed, which is handy, handling a higher tolerance early and still being able to access power output late. How do you trust your athletes to yeah, implement yeah, correctly? Yeah, so it's a matter of conducting the work relative to task. Right. So if I know that you need to get out of the gate really early and quick, we're going to schedule work like that. And then because of the cause and effect, I'm looking at this data every workout. You know, I mean, if I'm really staying on top of you, I'm looking at the cost of work. 
I'm looking at the yield, um, and it, it it pans out. You 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 know you you guys. I'm sure you look at this stuff. You look like through training piece. I'm looking at the metrics. I'm looking at what your heart rate looks like, what your pace looks like, what changes in elevation, what you know, what all this the, the cadence, all this stuff is kind of laying out. But the backstory is that because I've got the the data, clinical data to support what I'm looking at, I know what I see, right? And it may be different between you two guys. Like he might he might have a much higher threshold. He can go and stay aerobic for a really long time before he starts to to lose it. By the way, I've seen that with a lot of endurance athletes, really really high thresholds. But as soon as you you put them exposed to some lactate, they drop like a rock. You, you know, they just, they cannot get, you could, if you know this about somebody, by the way, if you're racing them, you, if you know what his pace looks like at the top end of that, that point, and you could exceed that, that pace just for a bit, you could break them. You could just break them down. You follow what I'm saying? Because they're, you're just taking them past this comfort zone that he just doesn't live past. Right. And I've seen this, this, I've seen this outcome with athletes I work with where I've tested them over and over again where initially we had some things, we, you know, we're talking about metabolic adaptations. We had some things that we needed to change. And we set about, you know, with our process, trying to make those changes. Then we checked to see whether it worked. You know, I don't trust my judgment. I trust the information that comes out of your body and it's borne out in, in my results. Because then it's just telling me, you know, it is what it is. It's like, and people don't shoot the messenger. I just, you know, you suck compared to what we were doing before. So whatever you're doing now is not working. We have to change it, right? So, uh, I mean, it just, it's a, there's no, I don't know that there's like a, a definitive um, answer to how to take you or you and make that really perfected, you know, result. Uh, well, another good example would be, look, you know, and I, I hate going down this road, but I, I, I'm almost forced to do it. Uh, two athletes that you guys know. I mean, I worked with Hunter. I worked with Veach. When Hunter was working on developing his endurance, you know, sustainable paces for a big guy, we were doing an amazing job early on. I mean, we were doing, and I'd show up at these, he'd like bug me to go to the race with him. And I'd, I'd go watch him just smoke everybody, you know, in, in a, what used to be like about a nine mile super, right? Just mm -hmm. frickin' rip parts out at a nine mile, the big as he was. Um, and then he started getting into CrossFit, right? So changing the intensity of his efforts, the whole dogma of how he approaches his training, uh, his his threshold went straight in the toilet. His VO2 max went straight in the toilet. And he was like, well, you know, I'm fitter than I've ever been in my life. I said, nobody said you weren't fit. I'm just saying you're changing your metabolism. You, you've, you've altered your body's processes, and now it's showing you what the outcome is. I said, but guess what? Based on what you're doing right now, don't change a thing. It's working out perfectly, right? And uh, same thing like with Vijay. For years, I, I bitched at him to keep him away from going into long stuff. I said, you're not trained for that, you know, and you're successful if you stay under like a 10K event. You could you can own the world if you just work on your ability to do that, and it's worked out marvelously. Now, you know uh, he's out there doing this games thing. I, if he would have asked me, I would have said, "Yeah, stay home." You know, revel in your 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 win at OCR World Championships and revel in your your series win. And you know, you don't drink beer, so you know have have some Kool Aid and hang out with your girlfriend or something. I don't know, but we'll see what happens when it all shakes out. I, I don't even. He hasn't answered my my text, so I don't know. How, I don't know how beat up he is. That's interesting. Earlier, you said that uh, that you have days where you 
you'll say you got to get 60 minutes of work in and let's say 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever it is going to be above threshold and you prescribe the ranges. You don't care when it gets done. And then you said that for someone who needs to work on front end, you'll specify these are front end workouts for tolerance purpose. How often do you give one versus the other in a, let's say a six day week? How much is, is intuitive and how much is scripted? It's a lot of it's got to, I may suggest that this is what I want you to do percentage wise and you're not capable of doing it. And so we're going to amend. And I give them the levity of doing that. So if I tell you I want 60% aerobic, that's going to work, right? That's easy. But if I ask you to go 25%, uh, 15 beats up, and you can't make that work, um, you approached it wrong, or you just weren't capable. So if you said collectively, I, in order to get 25%, I maybe needed to go an hour and 10 minutes to get that little extra bit because I needed more recovery before I can actually you know, stack that up or it just doesn't work. So in which case we're going to amend the work and approach it a different way next time around. Um, and, you know, it's just a work in progress. You know, a lot of it's got to do with, with uh, the individual's capacity to, to perform work. You know, you guys know this. I'm sure if you're looking at uh, data with your clients, you write six days worth of training, you get back four, right? <laughs> you know, they actually did four days, not six days, right? Uh, or, you know, I've had I've had people that I work with, you know, I just took on a new client the other day. She was going to go to Big Bear and do all three races. I said, no, you're not. I said, not on my charge. I said, you're going to do one race. And, and you know, and this is going to suck. That one race is going to kick your ass. Do the beast, leave the other ones alone. Uh, because you're just not prepared for this. I said, I'm looking at the last two weeks of training that you did off my charge. You are not anywhere near cap capable of doing three races, let alone surviving that that beast. Um, so we don't, that's, that's not the way we roll. We're going to, we're going to focus on one event. We're going to get better at that and whatever direction we need to take in order to uh, lack of a better term, periodize with you into a process. Um, you know, we're, commonly I like to go long late. You know, if you're going to, you're going to pick the long races, put them at the end of the season. Don't put them up front. Right. Uh, I don't know if you guys work that way, but I, I just don't, in a perfect world. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I know, I know. But, but so, so I guess it depends who you're working with, right? If it's a paycheck, it's different, right? And you, you can ask Vijay, he'll tell you, I'll say, look, I don't want you doing all three. I don't want you doing two races. Let's pick the one that we're going to win. If that doesn't go well, you don't get paid and you're already there. Let's do the other one, try to get paid. If you screw something up in the super, we'll go do the sprint and get paid. So at least you come home with a little bit of money in your pocket. But when I'm dealing with an age grouper, that conversation is off the table, right? Let's get you, let's tune you up for an event and let's, you know, let's start to own that event. And when you start to graduate, we'll start looking at bigger things. You know, maybe you start finding that, you know, you shouldn't be going long or maybe you shouldn't be going short, you're better long. Let's just kind of go towards the path your body wants to go on. And then if you want to, you know, experiment here and there, let's train for it. You know, let's not just throw that shit in, come hither and hope it all works out. I just don't, I don't do that. I, I don't know. Call me crazy. I just, that's not the way I work. I'm tracking you. I want, um, Richard, I'm going to pivot us right here pretty hard because I have a list of 12 questions and I haven't asked one of them yet. I'm sorry. Um, no, 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 no. This is good because the bulk of it was in your, like in your general philosophy is what we wanted to get to. And I don't know, do you have follow-up questions on all that, Bracken? Or are you cool to move on to something we can like 
skip around a little quicker just to get some good tidbits from Richard. I have one one overriding question that I feel I would like answered if I were listening to this, and then I'm all yours. Oh, I like that. Okay. I use the word begs the question far too often, Richard, but I feel like your conversation thus far begs the question, what, if anything, do you do to tie together your flow training to race day? Are you time trialing? Are you running uh, extended periods? Like, do you ever do race preparation workouts that are not flow in order to tie together everything and find out, can I rock for 90 minutes or 40 minutes? It's a great, it's a great question. I, I have athletes time trial all the time, okay, all the time. And I generally, what I'll do is like a baseline because I just want to see how things are going. I may start out with an aerobic base run and it could vary depending on the type of races they're prepping for. It could be anywhere from a mile to 20 miles in a time trial. And then I generally will follow up with uh, a flow styled um, time trial. And then I'll have them do a race pace time trial. I said, I just want you to go and just whatever you feel like you need to do in order to get to the finish line fastest. I want you to do it because I want to see what it looks like. I want to see what, you know, I'm looking at the analytics. I'm looking at the data. I want to see what it looks like when you do all three of those things. And then we can start to make decisions about what the pacing strategy might look like. So I do that all the time. And it doesn't make a difference whether you're OCR. I've got a guy training for Ironman right now, and I've been coaching him for a couple of three years now. We, I coach him through his first Ironman. We're going to go back and do another one uh, in a couple months. And I time trial the crap out of these guys. Not only, not in their case, biking, swimming, running, whatever. So not only are you getting their mental capacity dialed in through time trialing, but any potential missing piece from mis-executing a flow state is covered up and overlapped by frequent time trial efforts. Absolutely. Okay. That makes me feel better about everything you've said. Not, not, that, I, not that I discredit or discount anything. Yeah. No. It's just that some people might have said, but we're missing things. Now we're not. Yeah. Well, I, I listen, I'm a fan of time trialing, always have been. And every program, every program I've ever written is just fraught with time trials. And generally the time, usually in a static situation, like a marathon or something, they're, they're progressive. They start out at, at like uh, 5k and they end up at about 20 miles. And generally I have guys that I, I, I coach for marathons and I usually throw in about two 20 mile time trials uh, late. And one of them is like a base Okay, if if you just stay at this heart rate and cover 20 miles, what does it look like? And then now I want you to do like a negative split or I want you to, you know, bump the bump the work up wherever you feel like you need to. And let's take a look at it and then start developing some strategies around that information. And I also use that for feeding strategies, too, because a lot of guys don't really pay enough attention to when to feed what's more efficient in their feeding process. So that is feathered into the time trials as well. So, yeah, I'm absolutely, I mean, it's one thing to provide work, but then you got to test the work, right? you got to test the work. And if you're not testing the work, you're just flinging shit at the wall, right? All right. I'm satisfied. I'm glad you asked that question. I feel like with these coaches' interviews, which we're kicking off uh, with you, I want to ask the same questions to a number of different coaches and just get different perspectives and answers. So think like elevator speech times three like as in duration, like a three minute answer in which you kind of explain yourself 
and we'll probably dive into those answers a little bit, but um, just so we can touch on a lot of different subjects, because you, you know, there's a lot more than your overall training philosophy, then there's nuances and specifics within this, right? And three of my, three of my questions start with the word philosophy. Okay. And my first question is uh, your philosophy on shoes. What is your philosophy on shoes in regards to training? And I know it's a topic for you. So that's why I wanted to lead with that one. I'm going to go all through my three philosophy questions, but what's your philosophy on shoes, Richard? You need a shoe that's going to protect your foot. And you want a shoe that's not going to influence you any more than necessary. What does that mean? That means that I'm, I'm not about to promote any particular brand of shoe because I find that they all have fault. So because they're in the business of selling shoes, they're going to sell all kinds of shoes. I, I have a client in uh, uh, Taiwan I just spoke to yesterday. He goes, dude, he goes, I did that uh, 20 miler thing, you know, and he goes, my toenail, I got like a black toenail. I said, really? I said, I said, is your shoes too tight? He goes, no, I just changed shoes. You know, he goes, you told me that I should get an ultra. He got, he got a, the Toron, which I, the stack height on that shoe is way too puffy, way too big. And something in the course of his run, he never had that problem before. He changed that Toron, boom, and he screwed his toenail up. I said, this is why I, he goes, you said ultra. I said, dude, I said, this is why I don't talk about any shoe brands is because they've got all kinds of different types of shoes and some of them suck and some of them don't. And so I, as a blanket statement, and I said, I'll say it again, all I look for is adequate protection. So when you run, you have the confidence that you, if you step on something like a stone or something, you're going to be okay. And you don't want it to influence you. You don't want it to crimp your toes up. You don't want it to put you on a stack. You don't want it to put it on elevation heel. You just want the shoe to protect your foot so your foot can do what it's designed to do. That's my, that's my standard process. And incidentally, a caveat to that is if you have limitations in range, maybe you need a little bit more elevation in the heel, like, like four mil or something, maybe five. Because if I stick you from what you were in before into a neutral shoe, it may not work out. So, you know, I, I give consideration to that. But in a perfect world, if your body can tolerate it, I want to see you in a zero drop. And I want to see uh, just enough protection and enough toe box so that your, your foot can breathe. Bracken, you have any thoughts on that? You're the shoe guy. Well, I think Richard and I disagree on a lot of things, but we share the same main principle that shoes it's like finding a spouse. You find someone who supports you and does not inhibit you. Ooh. Now, we might look at different girls, Rich and I, but we would both try to find <laughs> the same thing. You need to be supported in your feet and you do not need to be held back by anything on your feet. So I, I find no fault with that. And I agree. How many times on this show do we say, I will recommend principles to look for in a shoe. I cannot tell you what shoe is going to work for your foot because your foot is not my foot. I know what my foot works well with. It does not mean it's going to work for anyone else. So I like Rich's answer. By the way, I say the same thing because that's usually the first question people ask me when they come to see me. Sometimes they'll bring a bag full of shoes to show me. And I'd, I'd say, look, you know, my premise is constant. I just, whatever you whatever you can tolerate without being overly influenced is what I want. I want you to be able to have the freedom to let your foot do what it's designed to do. That makes sense. I know. I know. Typically, you you veer towards maybe not minimalist, but more yeah, zero drop. Let your foot do what it's meant to do without being rocked or rolled or propelled, in a sense, which is my understanding in yeah, general. Well, yeah, but see, you know, the problem with shoes and and marketing surrounding the shoes 
is people just, all they know is what they hear, right? And these people are trying to sell you a pair of shoes and they'll say whatever the hell they, they think they need to say to get you to buy them, right? So I've seen people wear some ridiculous ass shoes that they have no business wearing and they're going to hurt themselves in them. And, and so, you know, let's just start from, look at, look at, I'm an old man. I'm, I'm fat. I'm a big dude. I wear a zero drop shoe and I can go run around in it all day long and it won't bother me other than me being overweight and, you know, better, could be in better shape. I'm not going to have an orthopedic problem from the shoe I'm wearing because I've, I've, you know, I'm barefoot as we speak. I'm conditioned to take on a zero drop shoe and, you know, I need all the help I can get. And if you put me in a, a high stack, stack height or something like that, I'm lost. My body just does not know what to do with that. All right. I'm satisfied with that. Next one. We don't talk about this much with you, Richard, so I'm curious to see what you have to say. Your philosophy on strength training for endurance athletes. I think it's necessary. I, th I think that every athlete should develop functional strength. Um, I was I did a podcast, incidentally, not too long ago. I talked about the 1% factor. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it, but continue. So 1% uh, is... It was built on, I, I, the guy's name escapes me, but uh, a, a British knight who was actually, he was charged with uh, developing Team Sky, the professional cycling team, which by the way, they were losing their ass left and right, everything they did. And he, he said, look, he goes, we're going to start solving problems in 1% increment. We're going to take care of the things that we know we can improve like right now. And it's 1% of the pie, right? So little things he did, changed the outfits so that they're a little breathe more breathable. He made sure that during the tour that their team went ahead to each town, 21 towns, to make sure they had the correct mattress and pillow for each athlete. So their sleep was premium. Their, their gear was – so at, at the end of the day, they won the Tour de France, and they won, won the world championships. And just 1% increments in change. So functional strength to me is focusing on the things that you need and by the way, another guy that I listened to that was really profound and just slapped me across the head, he talked about being effective with your process. You know, there's efficiency, there's economy, but before all that, there needs to be uh, being effective. So you may be really good at doing bicep curls, has no bearing on the type of sport you're involved in. And if you spend 15 minutes a day doing bicep curls where you could have been doing something that was beneficial, that's a function of being effective. So these little incremental changes, I'll look at an athlete and say, well, we know that these are the things you need to do in order to be more stable, uh, you know, more integrity throughout your system. Uh, obstacle course racing, obviously your grip and things like this have to be in play. But uh, every athlete I work with, we absolutely recommend or in introduce some fashion of strength based on demand, based on what we need to function on. And when you say functional strength, what do you mean by that? Look at the task. So um, obviously we're talking about leg sports, right? We're runners. So we want to make sure we have integrity. We want to make sure that we have balance. Uh, and functional strength means not isolated movements. I don't want to do, I don't want to go to the gym and, you know, I used to own gyms, right? It used to be plug and play. You'd follow the machines. Here's the leg extension, leg curl, calf raise, you know, flies, but, just go around the circuit and you covered all the bases, right? Well, there's no integrity that, in that process because functional work is going to integrate more than one group of muscles. So I like to do uh, compound movements, things that are going to be very specific to the task. 
So obviously you got to have, you know, uh, good, strong um, hips. You want your quads engaged. You want your calves happening, but you want to do an integrated. So functional work, things that, that are going to, the closer to the specificity you can be, the better you're going to be. He smiled. You agree with me. I saw that smile. Yeah. Do you want to be good at training or do you want to be good at racing? And, and I think lots of times we teach to the wrong test. You get really good at a specific workout or a movement. And so, yeah, I like when anyone says specificity, I get all tingly inside. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's really what it boils down. Back in the day when I used to do triathlons, all of my strength training workouts were specific to task. Whatever, I'm trying to think about what do I need to develop in order to provide more premium work. And I would, I would chase that down. I didn't just do, I didn't just do stuff because it was there. You know, I didn't see any value in doing like uh, a whole bunch of bicep curls in order for me to perform well in a triathlon. You know, using that as just an analogy. Think about how nice those biceps would look and how that'd feel your ego, which Chicks might dig you know, feel <laughs> your performance. You never know there, Richard. Okay. Next one. I could dive more into that by the way, but I want to move on because I got other things I want to cover. So, um, you are known for the treadmill. I associate you with a beep in the, my ear at about 180 beats a minute. And every time we see a video of you uh, or with an athlete that's trained with you, it's always on the treadmill and it's always to a metronome and that sort of thing. So I just want to know your general philosophy and feelings towards treadmill running and why those feelings are well, what they so are. I don't know. First of all, it's not a function of me preferring a treadmill over, a, over running outside. It's not that at all. Um, the treadmill is my workbench, right? I can watch what you're doing and I can control what you're doing. I can, I can assist you in what you're doing when you're on the treadmill. So I look at it as like the bench to tune your body, right? And I can get very specific with workouts on the treadmill. And we're using that word specificity again. So the, <sighs> the, the, the advantage that you have, let's say, for example, let's, we're going to train for a mountain race. Now, obviously, if you can look out your back window and you've got a mountain behind you to train on, that would be specificity king, right? Mm -hmm. But in absence of that, um, a treadmill is relentless. If I say, look, let's stick this thing on 15% grade and I want you to power the shit out of that for two hours, right? There's no break unless you get off the belt. It's, it's very, very specific. You know, it's going to just hand it out to you. You've got to deal with it. And I like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, VJ living at altitude up on the mountain, He's got that screaming new treadmill that he, he bought. I said, look, dude, I want you to put that thing on a 15 to 20% grade. And I want you to do four minute intervals, you know, take a break, get back in, take a break, get back in and just hammer the crap out of it and just become a mountain runner. But this is, by the way, before OCR World Championships that I was trying to get him to. He, he did do, I don't know how much of it he did, but I definitely had that conversation with him. So I, I like it for those types of uh, reasons. Now, some people will tell you, and, and I, I take exception to this, that they run different on a treadmill than they do outside because your approach is your approach. The way you roll, the way your body runs is the way your body runs. Now, the belt is rate independent. So regardless of what you do, it's going to continue to roll. So you're just kind of requiescent to the pace of the belt. Outside, it's rate dependent. You're not going anywhere unless you push or pull yourself through space. But your approach is the same. So, and I've tested this a million times to Sunday. I can tell you right now, I, I'm convicted when I tell you this, is that guys will say, you know, I run different when I run faster. 
Oh, really? Let's take a look. What happens is when they run faster, they run worse, right? If there was something I took exception to, going faster just exacerbated the problem. Um, and going outside, is, it's no different. It's just really a function of approach. So I, I don't know if that's what you were asking me, but I, I think that for me, you know, I'm not going to run alongside you. You know, I've got a chase bike that I used to use for that. And I could do that with you. And I've done it with long runs where I maybe go out and I want to monitor what's going on with you and watch what you're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, the bulk of my work is done on a treadmill simply because it's ease of function. It's just easier for me to keep an eye on what you're doing. Okay. So it's just like an easy objective measure when you're like analyzing biomechanics and understanding pace and cadence. It's just, it's logistically makes the most sense for some workouts. Okay. Yeah. I get on board. I mean, Gret Brack and you and I agree on that. Yeah, it's simple. It's a, it happens as close to a vacuum as running can happen. I went on a, a scouting mission of all your information, Richard. I was trying to figure out treadmills. So a, a guy, a gym I used to know had a treadmill that would go to 30% incline, but it had a turf belt and it could go up to 30 miles per hour. It was awesome. I didn't remember the brand. So I stalked you the best I could. Is Tough mm-hmm. Tread, is that the brand you use? No. No? Because that's the one that looked most similar. Yeah. So Tough Tread is the treadmill that I helped VJ get. Okay, so that he he got one of those. Yeah. So the guys that I bought my treadmill from, um, this guy's a, um, a, a mechanical engineer. Uh, he has a business up in uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, and he he's the guy's genius. He has developed all these really cool rigs for uh, biomechanics and things like this. Uh, my vibe plate. You remember the vibe plate? Did did you see it when you were? I have this big vibe plate. He develops those, um, and he's got a sea of people around him. Overspeed development. I went up there to learn how to teach people overspeed, and I have a big canopy and harness. You're probably familiar with this. Uh, I learned that work from those guys. But uh, anyway, I bought my treadmill for him because I, I my treadmill is really expensive, and uh, coming from Germany, just the shipping alone and tax all by itself just kills you, right? So I bought my treadmill for him from him used. Okay. But he recommended, in absence of that, Tough Tread. Because the dealing with the Germans was just untenable for him. So he said, you know what? I'm going to deal with an American company out of Texas, Tough Tread. Uh, he long since told me that he would not recommend that I buy one from them because their customer service sucks. But I wanted something with a good elevation, with good speed, and some other properties that this, belt ha- or this treadmill has. And I got a hold of those guys and... You know, oddly enough, these guys knew me, they knew of me and were excited that I called them at all. And I managed to uh, procure that treadmill for VJ for really, really cheap. Which is like a used car usually for those. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I don't, I don't like, it's a shorter belt. Um, It's not as broad as mine is and it won't go in both directions. Yeah. They say it has the capacity to do it, but they won't show you how to do it because they're they're afraid of uh, litigation something gets hurt. My treadmill is amazing. Um, and it's 20 years old. I've had the thing forever. And it's, it's like brand new. It does exactly what it did when I first got it. That's incredible. So if you had to recommend one treadmill, if someone said, I have money to burn, I want the best thing out there for training. What's your treadmill? I'd get a Woodway. You get a Woodway, one of their big, they're like sports science ones. One of my clients in Connecticut has two, one at each of her houses. And when she's got in, she's actually got the, uh, the Nordic track too. And she had that first. And I said, eh, you know, if you're going to get a new treadmill, get one of these. 
I like the I like that it's got a slatted belt, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is impervious to to repair. You don't have to worry about that ever, ever, ever. Um, they're built really well. Um, I think I would like it to be a little longer deck. They're a little short in the deck, um, and they don't go in both directions. Um, so, but from a, from someone just going to run on a treadmill in the house, that's the treadmill to get. They're they're pricey. You're going to spend fifteen, sixteen grand for one. Oh yeah. Have you seen their big one, eight by twelve foot tough tread? You can go for a group run on a treadmill. The tough tread. <laughs> yeah, it's like eight by twelve foot belt. Well, I, I know that uh, my company that I, that I deal with, the HP Cosmos, they have one too, and they I don't know how for skaters. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. broad it is, but it, you could put a passel of people on it. They also have one, which I thought was really amazing. You could get on a bicycle on the treadmill and it's rate sensitive. So as you pedal, it, it has sensors that adapts the speed of the belt to the speed of your bike. And you have a little tether in the event that you fall off or whatever, just to catch you. But you could go, I thought for VO2 testing for triathlon, that'd be, be amazing, right? Cause it's, you can't get closer to it than that, right? And I try to convince them to send me one so I could like set up a showroom for them and play with it and whatever, because I would be the guy to do testing with on the Western seaboard. I'd have every professional cycling team in the world showing up to get tested on that thing. Um, but you know, that's, you're looking at about $150,000. Drop in the bucket. Now that we started our running public training plan, right back in. That's right. All right, Kurt, <laughs> philosophy number three, or are you that on the was corner? three. I'm moving on. Right. There's like five I definitely want to get to, and my window stops in a half hour. So, because I got to get to work. And I can't, you can't give me a political answer on this next one, Richard. I want an answer. Speed versus volume. Okay. You can take an athlete who's training up to a beast distance, half marathon distance. You're capped at 20 miles a week, and all the speed work or vert work or anything you want to do, but you're capped at 20 miles or the equivalent hours of time on feet. You can throw anything you want at them. Or you have an unlimited cap of volume and you can't do anything past or breaching threshold work. Which one do you pick? I'd go with the volume. You would. I didn't expect that. Why? For a beast? Sure. Um, I just don't think 20 miles a week is appropriate for that, for that type of run. I, I just, it just is too shy. I don't, care how, I don't care how fast you are uh, in, in a 20-mile week. It's just not going to bear fruit when you need to go 13 or 14 miles up and down a mountain. So where's your middle ground then? Good question. How many miles to run? Well, no, where's the break even? I, and I hate this question as a coach, so I'm asking it to you. <laughs> where, where's like the least number of hours per week or miles you can choose and a distance runner needs to run to race up to, let's say, two hours effectively while you can control all the speed or whatever you want. Like, what is your minimum that this is enough work to handle the course? And I know it's so subjective. I could see why you hate that question. It's a bad question. It's a tough question. So first of all, um, I don't have this number that I aspire towards for every athlete. Mm-hmm. I find that some people, their sweet spot might be 50, 60 miles a week. And some people do a lot better with more, you know, 70, 80 um, but to be honest with you, you know, when, if you're trying to just succeed in completing the event, it all, almost doesn't matter, right? But if you're going to try to get on a podium, you know, you're going to have to put in some time. 
And uh, I think that uh, time on your feet is really critical for a race like that. So I like, um, I think if I had to put the minimum number of, of hours or, or uh, miles a week, I'd like to see probably a minimum of about 40 on average. Um, Richard, I asked that question to see if you would just throw a number or if you'd explain it. And what did I do? Well, you explained. Oh. I instantly yeah. discredit someone that goes 80 across the board, no negotiation. It's like, <laughs> come on. But you said the proper sentence, which was, it depends on the individual. I can't give you a number. Yeah. So I, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, it does. I mean, I've got guys that uh, I've got them up to uh, over 100 miles a week, big guys over 100 miles a week because they threw a task at me. Like, they say, I'm going to do a 24 hour event. And by the way, I posed this 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 comment to someone in this conversation in another podcast. So people go 100 miles a week. Oh my god. Oh my god. But you're aspiring to run in excess of 60 miles in 24 hours. What's harder? To run 60 miles in 24 hours or to run 100 miles in a week? I mean, if you can't tolerate 100 miles in a week, you got no business trying to run 60 miles in a, in 24-hour period. That's just logic to me. Yes, the logical progression. Can you do it off less? Sure. But can you handle 24 hours of racing if you can't handle a 100-mile week? That's less debatable. Should you run 100 miles a week isn't the question. It's can you. Well, so should you? I guess the question, should you do a 24-hour event if you can't handle the volume? Right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. If I put an asterisk by my volume versus speed question and I said... Uh, you can cross train for volume while maintaining the 20 miles of quality work per week. Would that change your answer? Meaning if you could only run 20 miles a week due to injury or whatever, but you could spend as much time as you want on the bike or elliptical or any of that, would that change your answer? Or would it still be firm in the run volume because we're teaching to the test? Well, so I get it. Uh, I get it. Okay. And, and I think that uh, if you're sensitive to the work, so let's just say that there's issues that, that, pre, that preclude your capacity to physically run beyond 20 hours in a week uh, or 20 miles in a week, then supplementing with something that's going to provide you with the, the cardiovascular capacity and keep your legs engaged. You know, you could dance around it like that if you want to. Um, but to me, I, I want to look at the bigger picture. Why can't you run more than 20 miles a week? Uh, I think a lot of the limitation in the distance or volume per week is is associated with injuries. You know, if you if you right. can't build more more my my wife's fifty five years old, she's going to run twenty miles a week and not even think about racing. You know, and because she mm -hmm. runs well, I've never seen her hurt because she she's been standing around me for twenty years. She runs well, and she doesn't she has no aspiration to do any kind of a race. But her girlfriend could call her mom and say, "Let's go out and run ten miles." They'll go run ten miles. You know, come back and mm -hmm. there won't be any discussion of, oh, my God, I'm dying. You know, my knee hurts. Or what? There's not going to be that kind of conversation because she, she's adept in, in her work. So right. that's going back to the very first question that we, we talked about was where, where my approach would be is the fundamentals. If, if I get a guy that's trying to go long and he can't go past 20 miles, we've got something we got to fix. Well, you got political on me. You got to pick. One or the other, still the high volume running, not surpassing threshold, but time on feet or the low volume running, all the quality work you want, but you're supplementing with low grade aerobic work to fill the gaps. Which one do you choose? The volume running. 
Still the volume. Okay, that's all the answer I want. Okay. Next question. Who have you learned from, Richard? Who are the coaches? Um, who has taught you the most about all of this endurance stuff? Um, you're teaching a lot of people, but who's who's taught you? If maybe it's yourself, I don't know, but curious. Um, you know, I've had influence from a lot of people over the years, and there's a lot of people that I highly respect. Uh, I'm just trying to create the laundry list for you, and I, I don't know who. They probably don't out. listen to this podcast, so if you leave them out, they're feeling no. Like well, first sure. of all, people listening to this podcast wouldn't have been who would influence me, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm just sorry to tell you that. I just. Uh, I just be. don't think I don't think there's enough uh, bandwidth in OCR to lean on this, you know, incredible coach, uh, to be very honest with you. And I, you know, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying that. But, you know, I uh, I look I look at historically some of the greatest coaches that that ever lived and what little, you know, morsels I might have picked up from them. But there's never been anybody that's like, oh, gosh, I just got to follow what this guy says. You know, it's never been that. I'll tell you what, what, what really has been the biggest asset that I have is my willingness to learn. And I, I study, and I have studied, you know, the clinical analysis of athletes and exercise physiology. It's what I do. I mean, it's, I, I get up in the morning, I'm excited about what I do. I go to bed, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with what I've done. And, and I have to fortify that with education. But now what happens is that I've, I've come to this place where my experience is starting to dictate for me. I've, I've had so much experience in the field doing what I do that I, I've come to really rely on what I've learned. But I, I, I'm paying attention. I mean, you know, it's easy these days. There's so much information available to us these days. And I'll pick up little morsels from guys left and right. Um, and uh, I have guys that I really respect for different things, right? But not this coach that was the guy that I just traced around and he was my mentor. I don't have that guy. Are you guys familiar with Anton Kupichka? Uh, Ten years ago, he won uh, Leadville in his first attempt. He became this cult hero. He has the the AK vest with ulti- with ultimate direction. He designed, I think, the New Balance first Minimus trail. No, he was like this cult hero for ultra running. He was the shirtless, long hair, barefoot runner type guy, and he disappeared with injuries. Didn't race for six years. He just came back to Leadville this year and took second or third place in his first ultra back. But there was this buildup. Billy Yang did a good little documentary on him that if people are listening, they should watch on the treadmill one day. But he said he's got a lot of flack for he's basically that band who changed their their sound up and all their original listeners hate it. He's he's with La Sportiva now. He doesn't do minimum shoes anymore. And and his his comment was, people seem to hate that I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. But how sad would it be if I was the same person I was 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. And that quote stuck with me. I was on the treadmill sweating, thinking, that's exactly it. Like, if you came up the disciple of a coach, and at 18, you learned, I'm a Lydia guy. And at 80, you died a Lydia guy. And you didn't change your philosophy one time based on athlete data feedback throughout the years. Like, that is a career wasted. You may have impacted thousands of athletes for the better. But in terms of self-progression, that would be a career wasted. And I would say that you personify not being a career wasted. Thank you for saying that. So I like the fact that you can't just say there's one guy that I follow blindly. Well, I mean, there are people that I followed that I don't follow anymore. Will I Mm -hmm. come to find the folly in what they were prescribing? 
And uh, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, I know you guys got to run and I just want to share this with you because it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys both know Phil Maffetone, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, oh boy. Okay, so um, I used to be uh, involved with a heart rate monitor company years ago where uh, Phil Maffetone was scheduled to do a presentation for these trainers at the um, Las Vegas Athletic Clubs. And they, this is a big organization. They, I don't know how many trainers they have, but they have a lot of them, right? They have like four facilities and a quarter million members or something like that. Anyway, they asked me to go and pre uh, uh, co-present with him. And I didn't know who he was. This is a long time ago. This is a long, long time ago. And uh, so I show up and I brought my cart. I brought my, you know, because he was talking about the, you know, 180 minus your age thing and whatever. And so I said, all right, that's interesting. And my first question to him, after having listened to him just boring as shit, talk to people for two hours, I was falling asleep in the back, you know, and I said, my turn, you know, so I'm going to get the card up. I'm going to start testing people in front of him. He's standing right next to me, right? And I'm like, got one, missed one, got one. Oops, missed one, you know. And I asked him, I said, Phil, I said, how did you arrive at this, this equation? He goes, it came to me in a shower. I was taking a shower one day and it just kind of struck me as the thing, right? Anyway, um, he said a lot of things back then that I just thought were ridiculous, he was recommending this woman wear these really minimal shoes to run a marathon. She was 75 years old. I'm like, this guy's out of his freaking mind, right? And I did a podcast with him. I don't know. It's been a while now back. But I apologized to him. Hmm. I said, you know, I got to tell you. I said, first of all, I've told everybody I know that you're a complete fucking lunatic. You know, for years I've, I've, I've dogged you. And here I am. I come back and I'm, now I'm, I'm seeing the value in having a zero drop shoe and whatever. And you were right about that. I said, so I just want to, you know, publicly apologize to you for, you probably don't even know that I've been dogging you for so many years, but I apologize. Mm -hmm. But he influenced me. He, I did get some influence from the guy, but I, I'm not on board with all the things he says. Not by a stretch, not even by a little bit anymore. Um, but I've had those, those exposures where people, there's this little thing that you gathered, right? And you took it home with you and it worked. And then and there's a bunch of stuff that you're better off just leaving behind. That's what yeah. I've always done. I think that's the only way to develop a philosophy. We, we, there's this concept, ah, I'm going to blank on the name of it and it pisses me off, but where when you read a newspaper story, you read it and you believe it, you read it, you believe it, you read it, believe it, you get to a topic that you're the expert on, you read it and it's full of holes and errors and you're like, this is ridiculous. How could they not get an expert on this? And you turn the page, you read the next story and believe it and you keep moving on. And we forget that that's the way all fields are and all people are. They're human and they're full of holes. I saw a research study just on the very same topic. And really? what they, yeah, what they, it was really cool. It's a, it was a video presentation I saw. So what they did is they got like 10 people in a room. And what they did is they all agreed, you know, they agreed they're going to play, right? So they're going to say that this color was gray, right? And they got this other guy that's outside the room. He brings him in. And so they asked the first person, what color is that gray? And it's like yellow or something, right? And next person, next person, next person. They finally get to this guy and they said, what color is it? He goes, gray. Because <laughs> yeah. he was just, he didn't, he just, there were, it was a, a resounding response from the group. So it must have been true. So he just fell in with them and agreed that it was, it was something that it, he knew that it was not. <laughs> because, you know, that, that's the way people mm -hmm. do things, right? You don't even question anymore. You just like, you know, if you don't question, 
you don't grow. You've yeah. got a question, right? And so I've asked a lot of, to the point where people think, God, what an irritating guy, you know, but I ask, I want to know. Yeah. Well, and like you, you wrote a book. Did, did anyone ask you to prove that your ideas were right before they published it? No. And that's the point. Like, well, truth be told, I, I self-published those. Well, it doesn't matter, right? That proves the point. Just because like there are some great titans of industry in our sport, but it doesn't mean that they were right about everything. It means they were successful. And some coaches like Phil were successful because of who they worked with and because they got a good percentage of their information correct. But it doesn't mean that 100% of what they say is 100% right. And a good discerning coach needs to be able to pull the best pieces from the best people and create their system. And nor, nor, by the way, might, might I add that I don't think he was being honest with some of the claims that they were making about Mark Allen. Yeah. I, I know Mark. Mark Allen competed in my, my race. I knew Mark Allen. But he did my race with uh, uh, Scott Tinley and the rest of those guys back in 1983. Mm -hmm. And so I knew these guys, right? I had dinner with these guys. And you're not going to tell me that Mark Allen didn't do any speed work. You're not going to tell me that he he turned a, you know, a six and a half minute mile pace into a sub five minute pace because he stayed aerobic all the time. I'm not buying that. I don't give a shit. Who tells me? There's just no way neurologically that that's going to turn into a, unless it's all of a sudden he went downhill. It's just not going to work. Yeah, there's only one way that magically happens overnight, and it's not through training. <laughs> that's, that's a different discussion. But the point being, you went decades without being a system guy, and now you've developed a system. But how, how sad would it be if you developed a system on day one of coaching and you hadn't changed your system on week, you know, 3,000? So anyways, I, long story short, I like the fact that you didn't stop learning. Thank you so much for that. Speaking of coaches. Since we're talking about coaches, Richard, hopefully you can answer this one for me. Let's say you get aspired to be the 70 year old age group marathon US champion. Somehow you get this idea and you have to hire a coach other than yourself. You have to. Who would you choose and why? Um, probably Salazar. <laughs> Bracken's grinning ear to ear. Why? Why Salazar? Because I have a lot of respect for him as a coach. I think he's probably one of the preeminent coaches alive in this. And there's people that have a lot of trouble with him. I'm not that guy. What would it be? What would it be about his style and philosophy that would put you'd put your trust in? Well, first of all, I mean, th this is egotistical to say it, but I think we agree on a lot of things. And I think if you're going to have a coach work with you, you better be able to agree with him. You know, and uh, I've, I've followed him and I've seen some of the things he's said and done. And I think, I think he's just a really, really solid coach. Uh, uh, one of my guys I work with uh, was also a coach for Nike and knows Salazar. And one of the things he told me that, that really struck home with me was he took Mo Farah and Galen Rupp down to Texas, pulled them out of training and said, look, we got work to do. And, just started tearing them apart and building them back up, working on fundamentals. Both of those guys are textbook runners. I mean, they they are perfections personified with the way they move through space. 
and that and I I, I want to say that in great part it's due to the influence from Salazar. And by the way, when Salazar was running and setting world records, he had the shuffle. Remember the shuffle? Ugliest looking run you ever saw in your life. It was terrible. And I, I just, I, I, we used to all try to mimic it too. We were all trying to like run like Salazar. And it was just stupid. It's like you put your butt down and get in this little shuffle situation. It didn't make any sense. But, you know, to, to his uh, credit, Clearly, he's not teaching these guys to shuffle. You know, he's learned something, too. And I've seen something. He, he said there was something I picked up from him. He wrote 10 points that he felt were really critical in order to be a successful runner. And every one of those things just bam, 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 just hit home. Easy to follow, hard to dispute, you know, and just stand up guy. Now, I know politically he's got problems. And there's, you know, a lot of people out there that want to cast shade on him. And I don't know how much of it's his fault. Um, you know how you know how the world is these days. It's like, I mean, the one thing about the, the, the young girl that, you know, he they said that he was badgering her about her weight. Come on, you're, you're, you're an elite athlete and you're heavier than you should be. Your coach isn't going to say something about it. Your coach is not going to tell you, well, get on the schedule. We need to, you know, where are you at? Um, I worked with uh, professional teams before. You know what their first stop in going into the gym is? The scale. They got these guys, every one of them, check in, get on the scale. We want to see where you're at. You know, it's just, I mean, it might be a little harsh. Some people can't handle that. A little sensitive. Wrong game. You know, you want to be a professional athlete? You want to have a professional coach? Sometimes they're not going to say things you're going to, you're going to want to hear. It's a fine line, isn't it? Well, don't you think? I mean, do you placate your clients? Do you just, you know, tell them what they want to hear and pat them on the back? Or do you tell them what they need, what they hired you to do? You know, they hired you to to provide information. And it, sometimes the information is not what they want to hear. I get into that all the time, you know, and probably, you know, part of the reason why some people think I'm so harsh, you know, they think that because I, I tell you what I'm thinking, you know, I'm sorry, I'm too old not to do that. <laughs> that I'm, I guess we're just not there yet, Bracken, are we? We got to at least enter our forties. If I name drop three coaches or systems on our podcast, the most, what is one of those? Salazar. Yes. Yeah, oh, really? Of course. So you agree with me? I, my take on Alberto Salazar is that if you have to find a fault with him, which is not difficult to do, it's that he will not leave any stone unturned. And if he got into trouble with that, all it does is confirm that everything he does in his training has merit because he has not flung anything randomly at the wall. He has tested and tried everything under the sun. So I will not give my personal opinion on him because I don't feel like opening myself up for that. But what I do know is that if there's one person I can trust to only give you workouts and training that is cutting edge and scientifically proven, it's Alberto Salazar. I saved my first document on my laptop from him in 2009, and I have not stopped researching everything that man's done since because he doesn't care about lines. He goes after performance. I don't, uh, you know, obviously I have an opinion and I, I, there may be guys out there that I'm not even familiar with that may be better than him. I don't know. Uh, but I can tell you that when you asked me if I had to hire a running coach and I could hire whoever I wanted to, my first thought would be to to pull somebody like that in, 
because I think that he he'd probably look at me, assess the damage and say, OK, here's where we got to go and we're going to go there. And he's not going to color it for me. My, I had a swim coach who was like that. I, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy was just rude, you know, but he made he made me a much better swimmer and he didn't color anything. It's like, you know, if you sucked, he's like, you suck today. You know, he didn't you know, and I didn't go there for a pat on the back. It wasn't I didn't I don't need that. I, I need advice. I need somebody to help me. So, well, and do you take his sanctions and his drama and his lawsuits aside? His core principles mirror yours, which is form perfection and refinement. It is proper foot plant, it's balance, it's power output, and it's running perfectly at every speed across the spectrum. How can you argue with that? So it makes sense that, yeah, you're right. He does, you guys mirror each other's beliefs. And we're both Cuban. Might be something there. There, there, could, there could very well be something there. I got five minutes hard stop, and I want to make sure we get these three things in. So you're under pressure of time now, Richard. Again, I just want you to like answer these as poignant as you can. It's very impossible questions to answer, but you have one just general scope sprint through beast distance, 5k through half marathon, whether it's trail road, OCR, whatever In regards to OCR, you can have one quality workout that if you had to only have one that you could duplicate, can you give me uh, either like the general idea of that workout or give me specific? What OCR workout would it be? So when you say OCR workout, you're, you're asking me to include the strength and all the other stuff? What, well, let's, let's stay with like run focus. I mean, if strength's included in that because it's an important component, yes. But the foundation would be run focus work. But yes, you could have your compromise session within that. Yes. Um, well, because the majority of the races in Spartan are hill driven climbing yep. for the most part. Most of the workouts that I do will include some climbing. I did a workout with Hunter. I don't even know. You might even have been at my place around the same time we did this. Okay. But uh, we call it the farmer's daughter. And uh, it's, it's, I like that. It's, it's uh, about a, uh, I don't know. It's about a, a 200 meter, 150 meter, 20% grade hill where we fashioned this workout to begin with. I drove my, my SUV out. I put 60 pound dumbbells in, in the uh, back of my SUV, drove Hunter's ass down to the bottom of the hill and had him do burpees with the dumbbells. Right. So it was essentially a deadlift involved. So we did like, so the idea was to actually, we did like a deadlift thruster type thing. So the idea was to really load the body up real heavy and then have them farmer carry the, the weights to the top, drop them off at the top, jog back down, sprint back up, get the weights, bring it back down. That's one round. And we try to do that for 45 minutes. And then the way it's written for some of my clients after that, there's four 400 meter flat runs. And, uh, I think that workout covers a lot of bases because you got to do carries. You got to climb. Um, the hill wasn't so steep that you couldn't get in a pretty decent running posture on the way back up. Um, and it, it, it also integrated a lot of strength and endurance. So um, I can tell you that historically, the people I, I issue that workout to, they hate it. It kills them. And I love the, it. The, the way the way it fa it's fashioned is it actually takes about an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, if you 
you know, depending on how much recovery you take, but about an hour and 20 minutes, it's brutal. Um, but I, I, my first OCR athlete to work with ever was Hunter. And I started thinking of ways to you know, replicate or be more specific about the event and the needs of the event to throw at this guy. And I was also curious to see whether he could actually do it because it was, it was a pitch of a workout. You know, you're looking at 120 pounds. You got to carry up the hill over and over and over again and then sprint behind it and go back and do it again and do the burpees and do the, it was harsh. And so I'd say that's probably my go-to. If I, if I had to pick one, I'd say that's probably, it's probably one of the first ones I wrote. And I have, a, by the way, I have like, I got a, a shit ton of workouts that are pre-prescribed, but. I like that. That covers all your bases and it's going to be absolutely miserable and talk about compromise or fatigued running. That would be it at its finest. Um, okay. Two, two minutes. Last question for either trail or road, but we're taking the OCR component out. Same typical duration, 5k to half marathon. If you could script one sort of workout, whether it's time-based, interval-based, distance-based, I don't really care. One general setup to a workout to improve performance uh, quality workout. Again, I know we're covering a big span of distances there. Is there anything that you go to, like Bracken loves his thousand meter repeats, for example. You have anything that you go to that you just find super effective? Well, we have a, we have this spot close to my house that we, we, we coined, actually, I think it was Vijay that named it, we call it Gulch of the Gods. And it's a trail and it surrounds this creek, this, this dried out creek. And it's about 300 meters around if you do a loop. And then there's about a 35% grade short hill right at the base of it. So we would do repeats around there, up and down the hill, round again, up and down the hill, round again, and then, you know, do it for time. And There's so been videos of this on your Instagram. There probably is. But the, the, the focus is, is that you're integrating the climb with speed. So you're coming off a real steep hill. You got to do the downhill. You got to go right into a run. And if you did nothing else, I, I used to tell people, look, if you want to train for OCR, come here. Just, you know, bring some weights with you. Come here. Everything you need to do. If you show up here four days a week, you're going to get everything you need. And, uh, you know, it's obviously, if it's a shorter hill, you got more repetitions on the hill if you have to replicate a much longer climb. But you can get it all done right there in that spot, as opposed to, like you were, you know, kind of dissing the concept of being on a treadmill. Obviously, that would be, a real good place to get real life scenarios under your belt. So you would take like a, almost like a terrain, like you were talking about with Hunter's dumbbell workout where you can run loops in which you're both going flat and fast at times and also climbing and descending. So you'd find the terrain in which you can do interval or speed or threshold work where you're getting all aspects again, covering all your bases in one loop. Basically. Yeah, actually there's a, there's actually a video of that with Hunter where we brought uh, dumbbells down thrusters, run up the hill, come back down, thrusters, run up the hill, come back down, do some loops. Yeah, we did that. We did a ton of that early on. Um, but I, you know, I just, I like simplicity. I, you know, I don't want to complicate things too. I mean, it gets down to a few things. You got to go up a hill. You got to come down a hill. You got to run fast, right? And and if we can work on those things, um, you know, the, the time span that we're going to spend doing that is relative to the time. I like it. Those are good answers. Mm -hmm. Well, take us out here, Rich. We've, we've enjoyed your time, but if people need just one or two sentences that they need to hear today about their running or their training, take us home with that. They should read my book. <laughs> Is that a shameless plug? Yep. I like it. Well, you know, you know I got to tell you, I, I have people that I've given my book to or they purchased it. 
and I'll, I'll quiz them. Did you read my book? Well, you know, I started to, and I just really haven't, you know, I'm not really much of a reader. Pisses me off. It's like, you come to me and you're spending all this money to, to do things with me, and you're not even reading my book? What the, you know, how do you do that? It's like. You got to turn that into an audio book, Rich, so they can get it while they're running. You, you know, got to get had you, that yourself Charlie, in this. Charlie Engel told me that. He goes, oh, Rich, he goes, it's not that big a deal. He goes, you know, you got to spend about 40 hours in front of a microphone. I said, 40 hours? No way. I, I tried. I tried. I got my mic here. I tried like, you know, I, got, I couldn't even get through a chapter. It's like, that's the hardest thing in the world to do. I'm not much of a reader means I don't care to learn. Mm. Well, I mean, I don't read stupid shit. I mean, I don't, I don't read uh, novels and things like that. I mean, I got a shelf full of things that are pertinent to my, my, my career. And I go back in there all the time. By the way, I set, I'm going to let you go. I know you got to go. I mm -hmm. set my book next to my toilet. And I, every now and then, will go in there and go, yeah, all right, okay. And uh, I'm the worst critic. If it, if it get past me, then then it was okay and uh i would i'm also going to credit hunter with this book because he told me because if you got to go past 100 pages you don't know enough about the information it's good to know you can absorb it right away and so that was haunting me while i was writing this thing i'm trying to narrow it down to like 100 and so pages and uh you could come up with you could come up with like a, a page of poop philosophy you just get through one page per one poop and you know at the end of a few months you'll be right there that is Cigar Aficionado. I have that there. By the way, you know, I thought about you guys this morning. I uh, just got my new Cigar Aficionado magazine and Joe Rogan's on the cover. Do you know that Joe Rogan was given $43 million um, to uh, offer exclusive rights to Spotify for his podcast? $43 million? How much more do and you, you thought of, And you thought of us with that? What do you think? Well, I just thought that you collectively, you know, and I, by the way, I, if you dig back on my podcast, go back almost 10 years and, and, uh, I suck. I mean, this guy, you know, what has been doing it for like since 2014 or something, $43 million. They say that he's, he's got like 46 million people that listen to his stuff. Yeah. He's captured a certain market through and through. I think he needs to have me on his show. I mean, he's had Ben Greenfield on. Oh, don't say that to me. God damn it. Did you really tell me that? So you're just a few rungs below Ben. That's not too oh, bad, Rich. God. Oh, God. Can I hang up now? I would actually prefer if we hung up right now. So let's do that. I well, it's go. been a pleasure. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to go throw up. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Richard. Thank you, guys. Thank you.